But if you think of kink as people getting really creative about play, that's what kink is. It's about playing. And it's about using the human imagination in concert with the body's ability to create different types of states. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker, and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by And Bam. Erectile dysfunction can be awkward to talk about, which makes it more challenging to treat. And Bam connects you with the doctor, and if suitable, ships prescription treatment plans discreetly to your door, so you can stop whispering erectile dysfunction at the pharmacy counter. Visit andbam.care, that's A-N-D-B-A-M dot C-A-R-E, and use the code Katrina at checkout for a 50 Rand doctor's consult and 30% off your first shipment. On today's episode, I'm speaking to clinical psychologist specializing in sexuality, Avri Spilka. She's based in Johannesburg and is also the president of the Southern African Sexual Health Association, or SASHA. She's highly experienced in helping clients navigate kink and helping people achieve a satisfying and rewarding sex life. I've known Avri for many years and we've worked very closely together and it was such a treat for me to speak to her about this topic that she's incredibly knowledgeable on. I mean, if we're going to dive right in and really try and unpack what defines kink, where would where would we start? Because I guess there would be a, a standard one-liner definition, but then there's a lot more nuanced definitions around it. Absolutely. I'm thinking of how best to define kink. So I'm going to go with the translation of paraphilia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, paraphilia means beyond usual or beyond typical love. It doesn't mean that it's not love. It doesn't mean um, that it's abnormal. It just means that it's not necessarily one's normative understanding of pleasure, of love, of romance, of affection. And kink is this umbrella term that incorporates a vast array of practices, relationship structures, dynamics, uh, fetishes. So it's, it's it's a big umbrella term. And I mean, if you kind of like say, okay, well, BDSM, you know, so BDSM is a part of kink, but kink goes beyond BDSM. BDSM being bondage. D is discipline, domination. S, which is sadism. Uh, submission, slavery, and M, which can be masochism, mastery. So like it's got, it's an acronym with multiple different meanings and all of that fits under kink, but it's not the only thing. And I think that often people have an idea that, I mean, if I talk about kink or if I talk about BDSM, that there's this figure that appears in people's minds of this leather clad dominatrix with big high heel boots stepping on the face of this masked faced submissive that's licking her boots and yes that's one i suppose iteration of kink but it's certainly not representative um, of what kink is it's just quite an extreme image that i think 
you know, quite captures the, the imagination. So I suppose it's quite difficult to define what kink is. And if you spoke to different people that are into kink or define themselves as kinksters, you probably get a different definition based on uh, whoever you were talking to. But I suppose it's a willingness to explore the boundaries of the body and the mind. I once saw this um, article on neurobio the neurobiology of BDSM that described kink as neurobiological psychodrama. I thought it was a fantastic definition because basically it's using fantasy and imagination to bring to life certain capacities of the body. And you can't separate the two. And I thought that that really just kind of took a, a big array of different practices because that's what we can get very involved in the different types of BDSM that are out there, whether it's you know, spanking or caning or flogging or rope tying or um, a domination submission um, relationship. We can get into all of these little minutiae, but it would be talking about, it would be like talking about sex as if it was foreplay and uh, fingering and anal sex and vaginal sex, which doesn't, I mean, you're just kind of breaking it down into these little discrete parts. You're not really capturing the essence of what sex is and can be between people. But if you think of kink as people getting really creative about play, that's what kink is. It's about playing and it's about using the human imagination in concert with the body's ability to create different types of states, altered states of consciousness, you know, through ecstatic pleasure states, through pain states, um, through particular types of psychological role, you know, that create a particular state, self-state inside of the mind. You know, so it's using that interplay, body and mind. And you can introduce different things into this theater to bring to life a particular type of play. You know, whether that's a play of humiliation or of submission or of domination or of abduction, um, you know, or of hedonism or whatever it might be, that's really what kink is about. And all the different tools that you would imagine are in one's dungeon, I'll come back to that word dungeon, are really just different letters in an alphabet that you're going to bring this play to life with. I like to not get stuck on the particular instruments. They're really quite incidental. People can swap them out for different things. The idea is what you're going to create. And I mean, I, ha I, have, a, I have a friend who describes uh, BDSM as play therapy for adults. <laughs> I love that. I was thinking that in my head. Um, you said psychodrama and then you said play. And I was thinking, well, it's basically like play therapy. Really. It is like play therapy. Getting um, into the sandbox, really. Yes. Sandbox is actually a good way of framing it, you know, so a big thing in BDSM, and I don't think that this is something unique to BDSM, it's just something that gets centered in BDSM, is negotiation of boundaries. So kink, you can see as a sandbox, and people will have very definite ideas about what it is that they're not comfortable with. We all have ideas about what we're not comfortable with. I mean, I don't like cold, for instance. So that would be the kind of like a big hard boundary around my, my, uh, my sandbox. But anything else really, you know, is inside the context of this safe, hard limit. And you can put a line in the sand and that's your soft limit, which needs to be respected. But the reason why it's in, in, the, in the sand is because when you're ready to 
maybe push that boundary a little bit, you can always wipe it out and redraw a line somewhere else. So the, the, those are lines that are kind of negotiable. And you can try something out, you can build that sandcastle up, you don't like it, and you can press it down. So I mean, it's I, I often use the idea of a sand sand pit as a as a way to explore kink with with patients because it it creates the idea of play and of safety. You're gonna you know it's not a free for all. In fact, what creates the conditions of safety and the conditions of experimentation and playfulness and entering into deeper states of consciousness is knowing that there is a boundary around what you're doing. And that, in fact, you have spoken about everything that's going to happen there and you've agreed to it and you're informed about what you've agreed to and that you also are only symbolically handing over control in a situation like that. You can actually just get up and walk out if you're not comfortable with it or you can talk to your partner and say, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with what's happening and you can stop it. And that is a really big aspect of what differentiates kink from coercion from abuse i suppose other kinds of like really dangerous types of risky play is this idea that there's a boundary around it you are trying to safely transform fantasy into reality so many of the words you've used boundaries play safety i mean you didn't use the word but you insinuated communication mm -hmm. all of those words well all of those terms and experiences should actually feature when a couple or more people are engaging sexually, no matter if they are engaging in kink or not. If I think about the act of sex, I think about the idea of letting go. I think about the idea of being playful. I think about the idea of expressing and asserting what you need and listening and hearing what somebody else needs and about being firm with what is okay for you and what's not okay and when it's no longer okay. And that's just, let's just say, just the average two people engaging in the average type of sex, right? So I love what you said about, about play, and I want to pick up on that. But before I do, it's this, I just had this idea in my mind. One, let's just say we're talking about two people here. And one person indicates to the other partner that they want to try something a little bit different. There's this notion of, ooh, you're being kinky. Ooh, you want to get a bit kinky, right? I think the connotation around kinky versus the connotation around kink are often a little bit misaligned. And kinky, I, while it has the connotations of being playful, I often hear that as being something that's, that's coming up as an as as you showing me you want to try you want to be curious whereas kink actually is a, a practice a way that we can engage sexually a way that we can negotiate and be curious sexually that doesn't always have to be super formal but is more often than not a little bit more formalized so when somebody wants to try spanking, which is like, you know, let's just let's just test the waters here to see how this feels for me and how this feels for you. They may formalize it once they've established how that feels with a paddle or with a riding crop. So they may formalize it a little bit more. And you tell me, I mean, do you think that idea of, oh, you're being kinky versus 
we're engaging in kink is so different? Do you think that there's a transition that takes place? Or do you think that actually really within the sandbox, it's just different types of playing and different types of curiosity that's happening? Absolutely. I think it's a matter of degree. You know, and I think this is also part of understanding that kink is not something that is out there practiced by those other people that are not like us, uh, but that most people in some way have practiced some form of kink. You know, so for, for instance, people that, you know, maybe scratch their lover's back or bite their lover's neck or call their lover baby, um, which is, you know, a bit of infantilism. Um, you know, it's these are completely normalized aspects of kink. Um, they're quite mainstream. We don't see them as being completely out there. Um, dressing in lingerie, really, you know, this is kink. It's just a matter of degree. It's quite soft kink. And yes, you can go to the further out of the, towards the edges of the sandbox you get. Yes, there are practices there, experiences there that might be a little bit more risky. Um, and that's part of the allure is getting curious about that risk and incorporating the risk in a way that is not lethal. Um, either psychologically or physically, you know, that, you know, people are, you can really push the body, you can really push the mind, but we're going to get out of it the other side. You know, and yes, there are some practices that are at the extreme because it is about being aware of your boundaries and then having a curiosity of, about having those boundaries pushed a little bit. You know, nobody wants their boundaries pushed over. We don't, you know, that's coercion. But sometimes we, we like it if somebody pushes a, pushes us just a little bit, kind of gives us permission to go and try that thing that we mm, we're kind of curious about, but maybe we have some guilt feelings and some shame feelings or some fear feelings about trying it. You know, and, and kink is one of these spaces where it'll, it gives you permission. You're rewarded for your curiosity. You are rewarded for the bravery and the, you know, the courageousness of going there. So yeah, I agree with you. There's, it's a matter of degree. It's a continuum. Um, there's this kind of light kinkiness you know, and then there's more, I suppose, um, you know, extreme or formalized kink. Uh, and that can that can even become people's, it can be part of people's identity. It can be a, uh, considered as a, a somewhat of a relationship orientation. Um, it can be considered a lifestyle, you know, and the majority of people don't run in that kind of space. You know, the majority of people are trying it out at home in their bedrooms and they haven't necessarily ever you know, logged onto FetLife, which is basically like Facebook for kinksters, or or gone to a fetish ball or party. They haven't necessarily tried those things, but they are incorporating kinky things at home. I think such a major issue with people engaging in kink is the misconception of what of what it is, and I mean, we would we would both agree i know you would that 50 shades of gray and the phenomena around it while it did no favors to the the truth of bdsm the truth of the relationship the dynamic the um interaction it did allow it gave people permission actually to to test their boundaries to engage mm. in those fantasies and it really validated a lot of you know, I, I remember reading an article at the time, you know, mid-America housewives buy out all sex toys or, or you know, sex stores or whatever. 
it really gave people permission to explore that side of them. And we all have fantasies, every single one of us. We had them when we were kids, we would daydream. And as adults, we daydream as well. And sometimes we daydream about sexual stuff. But mm. too many people feel a lot of shame and guilt around their fantasies. And so, yeah, while Fifty Shades of Grey is not what BDSM looks like, uh, in reality, what a fantasy you, looks like. It's what a fantasy, and thanks. some people fantasy. Yeah. There you go. It's a romanticized version of it, what it looks like. It it did some good things. It did help a lot of people break out of their boundary of their bounds a little bit. I think that for, for Fifty Shades, and I mean, we could do an entire podcast just about Fifty Shades of Grey, um, and I suppose the space of literature and art um, yeah. in. I suppose, creating a kind of public consciousness around something, moving something forward, because something did get moved forward with Fifty Shades of Grey. And I think that, you know, the magic ingredient there was that something that was usually considered quite deviant and per perverse was placed in the context of a romance novel, because that's essentially what Fifty Shades of Grey is. It's, it's a romance no novel, highly idealized, kind of like a Mills and Boons type of thing, just with more Benoit balls and crops. And I think that that genre you know, of Roma romance, which is considered totally cool and okay and acceptable for women to read, it gave this kind of backdoor into this other thing, which normally women were not allowed to be interested in without being considered vixens. And, and so I think it was a genius stroke to bring those two things together. And now suddenly all of this kind of sexy, curious, interesting, exciting new ways of, of experiencing your body, experiencing your partner's body was placed in the context of a relationship. So it's, and that's, and, and that is a big aspect of kink. I mean, you have some people whose kink is, quite auto-focused as in it's like it's something that they do alone but the vast majority of people the play is with another person and the other person the relational aspect of the experience is the frame for the experience it's the reason for the experience the tools the um you know like i remember with 50 shades of gray you could not find a benoit ball in joburg it was completely <laughs> sold out <laughs> because you know, people had finally learned about what Benoit balls were and, and just basically bought them out. And I mean, which is so great. The listeners that don't know what a Benoit ball is, why don't you just uh, describe a Benoit ball? <laughs> so, so Benoit balls are basically like uh, taking your vagina to the gym. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a, I mean, and you get, you get balls that look like little dumbbells and you get balls that are just like separate balls and put them into your vagina and, and the, their weight and their shape um, cause the, the, the walls of the vagina to basically like pulsate around them, almost kind of like a gastric tract. So just keeping them in there. So it actually, it, it improves, you know, strengthen your pelvic floor uh not good for people who've got very tight pelvic floors but quite good for um for people who have just given birth you know who are trying to regain strength in their in their pelvic floor and they can also be quite sensual you know in terms of of pleasure and they were featured in 50 shades of gray and and so people went out and bought them but it wasn't necessarily the Benoit balls in itself that was the most enticing thing. Yes, there, that's an element of it. It was the idea that 
Anastasia's partner had told her to put those Benoit balls in and was the only person that knew about it. And this was the sexy secret that both of them shared, that there was something inside of her that um, only he knew about. You know, and so we can and we can talk at length about the extremely problematic dynamic between the two char- main characters in Fifty Shades of Grey, which kind of normalized a lot of gender-based violence and you know a lack of consent and not creating a space where somebody ha- actually has the power to talk about what they're comfortable with without putting the relationship at risk. But what it did do was give people permission to start going out and bringing these things into their relationships. You're spot on. We could do a whole whole episode on, on Fifty Shades of Grey and what we have learned and what we should take from it and what we should not take from it. One of the things that I'm picking up on and I think is a, a good direction for us to go down the root of is around the relationship and the power dynamic that exists within the relationship because I think there is this massive misconception around the power dynamic. So could we delve into that? Absolutely. I mean, so really at the heart of DS relationships, you know, and I use DS to kind of be a, a an umbrella term for the different types of power dynamic relationships that can, can appear. I mean, and there are so many different kinds. I mean, so, I mean, just in the acronym of BDSM, you can get the master slavery one, you can get the sadist and the masochist one, and you can get the dominant uh, and the submissive. And that's just three of many different iterations. But the big thing there is an erotic power exchange where one person is consensually, willingly, but symbolically giving power to their partner. And then that partner basically receives that as a responsibility, as a gift. Um, and and for them, the, the, the dominant partner, it can also be a real rush to, to receive that kind of control, knowing you know, that this is also part of a fantasy play. They don't actually have control and say over what this other person does because that other person can turn around at any point and break the fantasy and say, actually, (laughs) I'm not comfortable with you doing that. And no, you're not in control anymore. But this is a very, very intoxicating dynamic. It speaks to incredibly primal parts of us. And it is a space, it's a relational space between two people or more people where the submissive is given permission and various different types of tasks, whether that's physical tasks or psychological tasks, which enables a process of surrender. So submission is not just something that you do. Like, right, I'm going to be submissive. I am now submissive. It's a whole psychological and gradual uh, transcendence of letting go letting go of control, letting go of power, letting go of of your inhibitions, letting go of shame and fear and guilt, and just basically really being completely enthralled um, by this figure, this dominant figure who is giving you reward for being more and more and more submissive. And, And in that state of surrender, I mean, it's, and it's, it's, it's called subspace. It's an altered state of consciousness, which is incredibly euphoric. That, that dynamic between the, the D and the S, right? I want to touch on something that, that people may find odd to hear and, and may be kind of relatively well-known to you and me. But the fact that, again, coming back to negotiation of boundaries and communication and that erotic power exchange, 
the person who is the submissive, they, they actually are able at any point to end the interaction, to end the play, to end the experience. And so often it's thought that just because somebody is dominating somebody else, they are in control. They are the one calling the shots and they can do whatever they like, but that's not necessarily true. And I think that's such a massive, massive myth that, that perhaps we, we need to debunk is around how one person is completely and utterly at the mercy of another and thus there is danger in that. And I'm not saying that there isn't because if things aren't negotiated properly and there isn't a trust that develops actually between these two individuals, I'm not saying that it, it won't be like that, but really in a, in a true DS dynamic, that erotic power exchange that you spoke about, it's paramount to the enjoyment and the pleasure that both people experience when engaged. Absolutely. And look, I suppose that when we're having conversations like this, we are also talking almost in theoretical terms about what we imagine, what, and this is people in, in, in BDSM communities, and this is what like psychologists, sexologists will talk about, is the idea of a, um, a kink that is consensual, there's good communication, um, the people involved are able um, and willing to talk about their boundaries they uh, sit down and maybe even formalize that in a written down contract, but at least in some way, that communication is made very clear about what's going to happen in the play. Um, there is an agreement about what roles people are taking up, whether they're a dominant role or a submissive role. And that's not, you know, because sometimes it has nothing to do with, with an erotic power exchange like that. You might just have somebody that enjoys experiencing pain and you have, and have somebody that enjoys meeting out pain. And it's not necessarily about a unequal power dynamic. It's just really about like, well, you know, the thing that you like doing, I like being done to me. And then you also get kind of things that are a little bit more role-based. So like somebody like a master and a slave, uh, where there's a particular story that's playing out. So it goes even beyond just having an unequal power relationship. It goes into playing out a role like, well, I am the master and you are my captured princess um, or whatever it is. In theory, people are able to sit and talk honestly about what's going on for them. They're able to enter into a play and to be aware of their boundaries and they're able to talk about a discomfort as it comes up. They've negotiated something called a safe word before they enter into the play and that's something that you issue, you know, as a kind of warning that you're not okay. And it's not going to be mistaken in the in the context of the fantasy. So, you know, you don't use stop because there may be a story that's playing out in, in, this, in this particular play where stop forms a part of the story and, and the part doesn't know that actually you really do mean stop. So, you, you know, you choose a completely different word that's not going to come up in the context of that play, like kumquat, you know, or whatever, your mother's name. No, maybe that will come up in your... <laughs> your play who knows, okay, who knows? <laughs> um and then it's going to stop and and afterwards there's this idea that you will sit down as partners and you'll do something called aftercare because you know subspace can be is a mind alterate uh, mind altering state it can take a little bit of time to come back to earth you're also very vulnerable emotionally and even physically during that time. So, you know, the dominant partner is going to take care of you during that time. It's going to give you a blank or it's going to find out whatever you like to, 
to have when you're feeling vulnerable, whether it's a blanket or, you know, a cup of cocoa, you know, or have a cuddle, or do you want to talk about it, or you want to sit in silence or whatever it is. Um, and then even like a day or two later, you want to check in with each other. How was it for you? Are you having any thoughts about it? Uh, shall we sit down and kind of think about what we're going to do next time? Uh, you know, so there's this kind of like whole process. And the person, you know, who's doing the, the, the doming in that situation goes and gets educated and reads up and gets informed about how to introduce different toys in a way that is safe, that is hygienic, you know, is aware of the psychological vulnerability that they might be inducing in their partner. You know, this is the ideal picture. You know, in reality, it can be a little bit more messy. Um, and often, I suppose, and this is maybe also when people come to see me as patients um, or where they land up in, you know, on online groups trying to find out more information is because they have gotten curious because we're naturally curious about this kind of stuff. They've tried it out and something went wrong. And now they're trying to kind of like fix it, you know, and, and that's fine. Sometimes we have to learn by uh, by making a mistake and often the lesson sticks much harder. You know, so I suppose if there's anybody listening to this, finding out about it before you try it, you know, and having the conversation first is a better way of doing it rather than trying it and having a conversation afterwards. I mean, I suppose one of the concerns that does come up, especially around that erotic power exchange, is that it is an incredibly intoxicating state. You are playing with the brain you are releasing various different chemicals um, you know whether it's vasopressin or adrenaline you know or oxytocin or you know, there's a whole cocktail you know so it's almost kind of like as if you become drunk you know and then we can have a conversation about how well can you look after your consent when you're drunk which is why you have to have the trust which is why you don't go and try something quite risque right out the door you need to slowly explore and feel okay doing it slowly um, and incrementally. I think there sometimes can be a little bit of a pressure to like, oh, you know, it's, and, and people do when they discover this world it can be like being a kid in a candy store. There's so much that is possible. There are so many different experiences and so little time. I need to try them all now, you know, but slow down because part of it is almost like an embodied experience of your own boundaries. Um, like, okay, you know, there was a bit of a, a slap and I enjoyed the slapping, but I didn't enjoy, you know, being called a bitch or I didn't being, co being called baby girl, you know, so it's, it's being aware of like, okay, I liked the act, I liked the domination, but I didn't like the infantilism and I didn't like the humiliation. So we'll do away with those next time and we will just, you know, hmm, spanking's nice and I, I kind of like, you know, not being in control. So, so yeah, it, pace is important because the theory is one thing, but when you're living it and you're trying to experience it and play with it and explore it, it's important to check in with yourself regularly, to check in with your partner regularly um, and give yourself time to digest the experience. And process what it is that you've experienced and what's come up for you. I, I love, again, that analogy of the sandbox because it that drawing the line in the sand can that line can be you know rubbed out and moved so there's really the ability there to go okay no, that was too much for me I'm going to move that a little bit more forward or oh I quite like that let's test the waters a little bit more and move that back a, a thought that I'm having is around the therapeutic aspect of these relationships and how healing actually sometimes the the 
experience of BDSM can be and how there may be an unexpected experience of emotion that comes up relating to to some of the play that they're engaging in that could surprise them that there was was suppressed there that was related to a trauma and I, I I wonder about using kink and let me just clarify when I say kink and and this is an education for me when I say kink I'm referring to as you said in the beginning really anything that we can do that unusual expression of love I'm not just saying BDSM it doesn't just have to be within that realm okay can we just maybe touch on the idea of using kink in a therapeutic way? Absolutely. And while I'm thinking of it, just in terms of making distinctions, I think it's important to like, you know, that the distinction is we're not talking about paraphilia disorders here. I, I just thought that as well. I think that that's important for us to say. I was thinking, yeah, being rubbed up against. So, so having someone frotter against you, which frotterism is when somebody non-consensually rubs up against you on public transport. Um, yeah, can we make that distinction? That is important. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So I think it was the distinction, I think, between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5. And for those of you that don't know, DSM is basically the big book of everything that can go wrong with you. Um, and there's oh. lots to be said about whether how much, how seriously we can take that book. But it does have a lot of influence on the way in which we uh, frame things. And up until, I think it was 2013, there was only paraphilias in the DSM which meant that whether you were engaging in something that was non-consensual, that was damaging, that basically made you uh, dysfunctional in your life, or whether, you know, you were wearing a, a blindfold and spanking your partner, the DSM did not make a distinction between those two different things. Um, and now there is a distinction, you know, in order to qualify as a disorder, you know, it needs to be causing you lots of distress. It needs to cause impairment in multiple areas of your life. And for certain paraphilias, it needs to be non-consensual, like rubbing yourself up against um, somebody in, in on public transport or flashing somebody in a park. You know, these are not, uh, this is not the, the BDSM kink that we're talking about. You know, there, there's treatment for paraphilia disorders, you know, and, and, but it's a completely different kettle of fish. What we're if talking I, about. If is, I can interject there. I think something that would be helpful, you know, that our dear Professor McIntosh taught me very, very early on when I started working with her and, and somebody who's been a guest on this podcast before safe, sane, consensual. Yes. The three crucial things around anything that we're doing sexually is it safe? Is it sane? And please, God, it must be consensual. Consensual, absolutely. And that's a really good adage that guides people who are exploring this, this way of being. And also, I suppose, safe, sane, and consensual kind of exists alongside RAC, which is risk-aware, consensual, kink. You know, and really, the kind of those two different acronyms just represent different debates around uh, what can be considered sane. Because, you know, one person's insanity is another person's sanity. So the rack spoke to that, you know, that you're aware of the risks, you're informed of the risks, you are taking precautions to mitigate the risks, but you're going to engage with the risks anyway. So I have to say, I don't necessarily think that I have read research that speaks directly to this. It almost kind of comes up as an incidental finding in research um, that, you know, participants will talk about um, how they do find BDSM to be and King to be quite healing in that it gives them access to parts of themselves that were previously split off or dissociated. And now they're able to experience it in a safe kind of way, which is essentially therapy. 
where, where we create the safe container and these parts of you that are difficult to look at, difficult to experience and to sit with, they arrive. And it might not be entirely comfortable and it may even be painful, but you sit with it. And because you're able to sit with it, it now becomes something that you have access to and it's part of you and something gets released. And if we think of kind of somatic therapies, which access the body, and the idea behind somatic therapies is really that we bypass the conscious mind and all the defenses that are associated with the mind. And we go directly to the body and we go directly to things that are stored in the body. BDSM then falls into this, into that arena where we release things that are stored in the body. I think it's quite complicated how things become stored in the body because the body and the mind are not separate things. But for instance, if you have somebody that has been brought up in a household where their body has been shamed and their desires have been negated and they haven't been really been given an opportunity or a space or permission to talk about the things that are important to them. They may find that they feel really guilty and really anxious when it comes to talking about their needs. And here is a space where that is all not, it's not just encouraged. It's a prerequisite. You know, you will have somebody sitting going, we are not going to go ahead with this play until you sit down and tell me what it is that's important to you, what you feel comfortable with, what you don't feel comfortable with. And it's not that you are choosing to tell me, I'm telling you that you have to tell me. And it almost alleviates the guilt and alleviates the anxiety because, well, I'm not choosing to do this. This person's forcing me. <laughs> and, and that's kind of like the, the, the trick uh, the therapeutic trick of BDSM is that you force people to do things that are good for them. <laughs> I love that. And then they can have an experience of negotiating their boundaries. There are other, I mean, more kind of complex or layered ways in which healing can occur. So for instance, people that have experienced sexual violence can become very dissociated from their bodies, you know, and one, one somatic path of, of healing is through pleasure. So, you know, the kind of more tantric vibe, which, you know, where you, you create um, a space of safety where the person can experience pleasure in their body without feeling that there is any demand on them to reciprocate and without feeling that they're being exploited. And, and that feeling of feeling safe and pleasure in their body will allow them to feel, to, almost for their body to start coming online. Like it's now safe for me to, to experience my body. I don't need to be absent from my body because bad things are not happening to it. The same thing is true about BDSM, just that the pathway is not pleasure directly. It's pain, you know, so, but it's the same premise. I'm going to feel safe as I experience this pain. I am consenting to this pain. I am in control of this pain. And it can also do the same thing where it releases you know, that stored trauma where I was helpless, I was terrified, I had no control, my boundaries were being violated, I had no way to even make sense of this experience. It can release that by creating experience where the opposite is happening, you know, but it's happening inside, it's happening with the body. I've spoken to a lot of pro-doms that, I mean, and it's, and it's an interesting it's an interesting field, and I suppose especially the kind of the correlations between working as a as a sex therapist and then working with uh, working as a as a pro dom. The pro doms, a lot of people go to pro doms because they're holding on to trauma, and this seems to be a way to work through the trauma. It can be quite difficult for the pro doms to hold it because they get placed in the role of the aggressor, you know, which is quite difficult material to hold. 
but the results can be it's you know incredibly liberating um there was this one prodom that uh she had a jail cell in her in her space and um that's a common request right from clients mm, mm. yes and this particular cl- uh, client of hers had been a prisoner of war you know so it had you know been imprisoned um and tortured and there was a sexual element to the torture and a lot of humiliation involved and he asked her if he could stay in her jail cell for like weeks at a time and he would reenact the trauma but at the hands of a beautiful woman that he had employed and through that process it allowed him to work through and release the trauma of what had happened to him it kind of allowed him to regain a sense of control and now granted this isn't the typical therapy that people request or are looking for but it is an aspect and that's those are kind of extreme healings from from this you know the type of stuff that you'll find in the average bedroom is something like a reclaiming of your of parts of your sexuality that have been dismissed or denied because you were told that you know nice respectable people don't do that kind of stuff you know so that can be very healing just kind of saying to your partner you know i really would like to explore uh spanking or i would really like to explore being tied up or um you know and having your partner respond positively to that you know and kind of co-create an experience with you can be incredibly liberating from shame and guilt I love that you gave a length and breadth of examples there, everything from, you know, wanting to be locked up in a jail cell for weeks on end, but in a, in a, in a controlled environment and in a situation which the person requesting that has the ability to request it to stop to all the way to just feeling liberated by not feeling helpless within my own sexuality and not feeling ashamed within my own sexuality. And I think that is the wonderful thing about kink as a practice. But yet, unfortunately, I think it's often overlooked because people may deem it as, as violence or aggression or, you know, pushing boundaries too far. And unfortunately, there are there are those people. I mean, even in our profession as sexologists, there are those people who, you know, they go and do a weekend course and they don't follow and or they don't jump through all the hoops and tickle the boxes that we have to do in order to be legitimate it's the same within i guess within the kink world there are unqualified mm. and then there are qualified and i think that the therapeutic mm. stuff happens can happen just between a couple but it can also take place when somebody is quite literally seeking out therapy because there's a difference between therapeutic and therapy seeking out that therapy from that space where they're in control yeah. And I'm going to say a disclaimer to people yes. that are seeking out therapy from that kind of space. It can, under the right conditions, be very powerful. But entering into kink because you're trying to work through something can also be quite risky because you are delving into vulnerable and delicate parts of yourself. And you're not entirely 100% sure if the person that you are playing with is able to hold it or is able to meet you in the way that you need them to meet you. You know, so I, I would I would not necessarily encourage people to go, you know, go off into the kink community if you've got to work through like, you know, some issues. If it happens incidentally, you know, through, you know, your playfulness and your curiosity, that's great and that's wonderful. But it's it can be a bit dangerous if you are just kind of like 
arriving at a king party and you want to work through something and you meet somebody at you know who's a play partner it, it's you are in a vulnerable position and i wouldn't want that vulnerability to be exploited or to be taken advantage of in any way or and and that can happen completely without malice the person that you're playing with may just not know how to hold you you know so i you know i have patients that are you know avid bdsm players kink is a huge part of their life and therapy talk therapy is something that happens alongside it so i mean these are people that have set up bdsm relationships they live in dynamics you know almost 24 7 and they'll go to kink parties and play there but they'll also play at home and stuff may come up during those plays with their trusted partners um but they will also come and process stuff with me it's 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 a little bit more comprehensive and holistic. No, I'm so glad you disclaimed that. And and I think it's the same issue that I have with uh, psychedelic trips, unfortunately, guided, guided psychedelic experiences, that it is all good and well to go and do a guided psychedelic experience or to go to a club and engage in these practices. But what happens after? As you said, who holds the space for you after? And I think... Very often, especially if there's, you know, complex trauma there or, or developmental trauma or deep, deep wounds that you've you've for a long time been trying to cover up. It is a real necessity to have somewhere to talk through what's coming up and to integrate what it is that you're experiencing and process what it is that you're experiencing. So I'm glad that you disclaimed that. I mean, honestly, we could we could talk about it for so long. There's so much around this topic. And I want to just go back to that couple who, who does just explore a little bit of the boundaries because for my listeners, they, they are not going to generally be the people who are, you know, living almost 24-7 within this power, erotic power exchange. And so... Where, do, where does someone even start? Because they've got the curiosity, right? They've listened to this podcast. They thought, oh, that does sound interesting. Or I did read Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever it was. Where does one even start? How do you even go about navigating this? Especially when, I mean, I guess that's a whole other topic of conversation, when you do perhaps struggle to ask for what you need sexually. Mm, mm. And look, it can be quite tricky. And I have to say that this is one of the biggest sticking points is just how to open up the conversation. Sometimes it can be experienced as quite threatening when you bring anything new into your intimate life. You know, and it may bring up, provoke questions in your partner's head about why are you bringing this up now? Is there something wrong with me? Is our sex life not satisfying enough? So it can be a bit of a minefield sometimes to bring it up in a way that feels playful and curious. You know, again, there's that theory. In theory, it's all playful and curious. In reality, um, you might have a partner who is quite anxious or quite insecure or, you know, can be quite defensive and it can be difficult to bring it up, you know. So slowly, bringing it up slowly and honestly, you know, like this is something I'm interested in trying or looking at or reading up a, a bit more about, like, you know, what does it make you feel? And to be receptive to that response if you are looking for a response which is oh my god baby we have to try this i've actually got like you know a whole list of things that i'd also like to try it may not be a realistic expectation so to kind of manage your expectations that there might be some reservation there may be some questions there may be mistrust or suspicion but that's not necessarily a shutdown 
you know, to just kind of stay with it. You know, it's real, you know, real intimacy is about truth. BDSM and kink is hugely about truth. Um, so if the truth of that moment is that you're both quite scared of this thing and you're not quite sure how to approach it, own it. You, know, you don't need to be maestros um, in this. You can be, you know, novices. You're curious. You're going to read up on the internet about it. You know, I wouldn't necessarily think that FetLife is the first place for people to go. I think that there are a lot of other sources on the on the internet where even it's just like, you know, BDSM for beginners that you can go and just look. And often there will be these kind of questionnaires, you know, so so they, they can be with for people that are kind of more serious players are part of the consent and contract negotiation process. But those contracts can be really useful for anybody just to sit down and be exposed to what's available. And then you can kind of go, no, I'm not at all interested um, in wearing high heels. Like, yes, I am quite interested in experiencing a bit of wax play, um, but my interest is actually giving it rather than receiving it. And it takes you through a whole list of different practices and experiences uh, either as giving or receiving, and you can rate it. I'm really interested in that. I'm completely not interested. I'm kind of like sitting in the middle. And, and that can be a useful exercise. It can be a, an interesting date night where you just kind of go through this uh, questionnaire and without the threat of anything being made into a reality. You know, so you kind of frame it as this is just a theoretical discussion. This is just kind of like an exploratory thought experiment. And that's kind of where you start. I love that. And, and it's thank you for such a, a practical, tangible place to start it. As we draw the conversation to a close, I need to circle back to something that you said that I don't want to miss. Dungeons. Let's go. Let's talk. Okay, so most people's um, idea when they when we when we think of BDSM, and this is a you know, this is pop culture, this is media, this is books, this is movies, this is songs. Is, is the idea of dungeon fetish where, you know, there are chains hanging from the ceiling and everybody's dressed in leather. And, you know, if there's a light, it's a red a light, light bulb. You know, it's quite like, you know, dark and edgy, um, you know, and, and yes, some people are really into that and that's great. But, you know, I, the most common kind of, um, you know, fetish or BDSM or space that is pajama dumbing and pajama BDSM, because that's kind of where most of it happens, you know, is in people's bedrooms, in people's fantasies, in people's houses, you know, so it's uh, the vast majority of kink happens in our everyday spaces. And, and I think that it's important for people to kind of go, yes, dungeon fetish has its space. And, and that is something that you can absolutely explore if you're interested in it. But if you find yourself kind of just like wanting to be in your bedroom or your lounge or in a car and kind of having a bit of power exchange or, you know, a bit of slap and tickle, that is also a kick. It doesn't have to look a particular way. There was this one story of um, a couple where the wife would just tie up her husband in a skipping rope and they would sit and they would watch the rugby. You know, that's kink. It's, it, it doesn't have to look any particular way. It's how you want to, want to make it look. That's, what feels para good for you. that's paraphilic. It's an unusual display of love. It's an unusual display of love, but so sweet. I mean, I was like, oh, bless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, I wonder what it would feel like to be tied up. 
but I also want to watch the rugby um, and we'll do those things at the same time. Or like, I wonder what it would be like to eat strawberries while we're having sex. Or I wonder what it'd be like to lick honey off of you. You know, so it's just this curious, like it's, that's kink. It's, it's, it's a, it's what's happening in your mind. I would like to try this thing or I would wonder what this would feel like and following that, you know, or the rest of it is just like following it in a way that's safe and sane and consensual. And rack, Risk and rack, consensual kink, mm-hmm. but it 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 really sums it up beautifully, Avery, and and it talks to that spectrum you mentioned at the very start of our conversation that this can be play that happens while watching the rugby, or this can be more intentional, more formalized play that takes place at a club or mm. within a specific setting that is designed to be a jail and look like jail there there's so much variation in what kink can look like and as soon as we limit our idea of kink to dungeons and red rooms and chains and whips and nipple clamps and things like that we do a real disservice to the kink community and kinksters but also to ourselves and our sexuality because we limit what we allow ourselves to do and where we allow ourselves to go when we play. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, your imagination is a limit to what kind of theater you can create. The other limits are really come down to, you know, the limits of the body and the mind and what you can safely bring out of your fantasy into reality. Not all fantasies are there to be actualized. Some fantasies you may only ever be able to talk about but many fantasies can be brought to life. And it's almost like a de-shaming process where in enacting the fantasy in this, in this way, which is you know, based on consent and communication and acceptance, you really release the parts of you that are constricted and it can leave you with a great sense of well-being, just kind of being okay with who you are, you know, ex- accepting of who you are. Mm, it's such a powerful place for us to end. I, I, I have to be honest with you and say that outside of doing some training in BDSM, and I've given lectures on BDSM before, I really feel like I got educated today by you because you have really expanded my definition of it, my view of it. And I have a wider view and definition of it than the average person or somebody who was listening today. So I really hope that people who are listening have had their their view and definition of it widened as much as mine has been. And it's just been so interesting and fascinating and, and wonderful to learn from you. So thank you for that. Are you curious about sexuality and want to learn more? Well, you can learn much more from me on several platforms. On my website, you can find short online courses to expand your knowledge, either as a member of the public or as a healthcare provider. And if you want a comprehensive sex education that you really should have had but likely never got, then check out my three-hour class on mymastery.tv where you can buy my single class for as little as 145 Rand or $13. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. 
you can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.